Well, good morning. As Corey said, Jim Britt here, one of the pastors. And uh, got to get all my technology out here. What happened to paper? Um, well, let's open our Bibles to Romans 3. Romans chapter 3 as we're continuing to march down the text. Thanks for coming. It'll be fun. Try not to uh, be too engaged in what we do this time of the year uh, at this time in any Sunday morning service. See who comes in at 10 minutes after 11. Uh, so um, so we'll, we'll enjoy those moments, but not let it distract us. Um, but uh, no, good day. It'll be a good day. So thanks for coming. I know this morning probably came early for most. Um, my neighbors uh, across the here they're called uh, lakes. Um, I call them retention ponds. Here across the retention pond, somebody decided to uh, have an incredibly late night party, which uh, was just a, just a real blessing. As uh, it was really good music, thankfully, but it was just screaming into our bedroom across the water. So uh, you're probably like me. You're not as sharp as you normally are. I'm kind of dull to begin with, but you know it's it's tired. And I drew the short stick. I mean, this is God's word, so there's never a short stick. But this is a theologically dense passage. And uh, we get to go through it together when we're tired. So here we go. I don't have a get-out-of-jail-free card. Um, I'm not throwing up a soursop. But we are going to roll through this stuff. But we're going to get a history lesson to begin with. So, Romans, let's throw the next slide, if we could. We're going to be talking about sola Fide, Latin, we switch it around in English, just like you would in Spanish for the translation. Um, Faith alone, faith alone. It was not the only, but it was one of the battle cries of the Reformation. So we're going to open your Bibles to Romans 3, 27 through 31. Romans 3, 27 through 31. And while you're doing that, I'll give you a quick history lesson. In 1522... 1522, a German monk um, named Martin Luther, he was no longer a monk, he's he's actually hiding in a castle right now. He's he's being hidden by the the ruler of his particular province in Germany because they're hiding him to keep him alive. And while he's hiding in that castle, he's busy completing a trans, he's starting and completes a translation of the entire Bible, but in 1522, he's nailing the New Testament. And he's doing something that for us, you know, it's just normal to hear in the original translation, and we're always talking about Greek, and you can get your Greek study thing. Well, in his day, studying from the Greek New Testament was relatively unheard of for, for his area. Actually, it, it had just come into the school that he went to just like a generation before, and it was just a part of the curriculum, not the mainstay of the theological curriculum. Usually, if you translated a, a, a Bible into an original, from an original language, so to speak, into the colloquial language, which was very, very rare, but when that did happen, it would come from Latin to your language. Luther did it from Greek. So here we are, 1522, Luther's doing it from Greek into the German language. In his translation, he did something that our modern Bibles do all the time. But for that era, that was near heresy to do. He added a word in a particular verse that we're looking at today. That word was not in the original Greek. The the word is our word, all. 
And that word was not in the Greek text. And he came under a lot of fire for adding to Scripture. But he defended it by saying, listen, the, the, the colloquial German that I'm around and Paul's intention in the New Testament and in the text allowed for me to add a word. It was to clarify into German what Paul was saying in Greek. But he caught a lot of flack for that. So much so that when he completed several years later, about 12, 13 years later in um, 1534, when he completed his, his entire translation of the Bible, faith alone, because he added the word alone to faith, Faith alone became one of the battle cries of the Reformation. And perhaps you've heard, fast forward to 1547, there'll be a test at the end, 1547, as part of the historic Council of Trent, the Council of Trent, the Roman Catholic Church responded to this particular issue, sola fide, faith alone. And here's what, they said a bunch of stuff, but they they popped it up into a last paragraph. If anyone says that the sinner is justified by sola fide, by faith alone, meaning thereby that no other cooperation is required for him to obtain the grace of justification, and that in no sense is it necessary for him to make preparation and be disposed by a movement of his own will, let him be anathema or accursed synonym excommunicated. Now, that seems harsh to us, but you know, it seems kind of reasonable. Haven't I mean, didn't Luther read James 2:24? I mean, James 2:24 is clear. You see that a man is justified by works and not by faith alone. That's the New American Standard Bible. That's a more literal translation. It add, doesn't add alone, it's there. Even today, just go to, go to a website that, that, that they're having theological discussion about this issue. And I'm, I'm quoting a Catholic theologian. Even today, Roman Catholicism affirms that we are justified or counted as right before the Lord by faith in Christ. And that no one, no one is saved apart from him. We agree 100% with that statement. However, quoting this man, Roman Catholic theologians deny that faith is sufficient for justification. Instead, good works of obedience must be added to faith in order before, in order for God to declare us righteous. Justification comes first through the sacraments. Justifying grace is poured into the soul at baptism, lost through mortal sin and restored again through confession and works of penance. How do you square faith alone, James, and those statements? Well, Luther knew that we're not saved by a simple profession of faith. Just walking the aisle and praying a prayer doesn't get the job done. And that's what, that's what he was trying to address. It's not a simple profession of faith or a claim to faith. He was very well aware that the Bible taught that faith has to be genuine. That was James's point. Before the righteousness of God in Christ is imputed or attributed or counted to anyone. So Luther did correctly translate Paul's thought into the, for the Germans of his day. Both Paul and James would agree with Luther's translation. You can't just say... You have faith. No, true faith 
will absolutely... Now, I'll tell you what. Let me slow down. This is important to grasp. True faith will absolutely and necessarily result in you obeying the commands of God. It's cause and effect. But, but to say you need to have works before you're justified and in order to be justified is putting the proverbial cart before the horse. No, the horse pulls the cart. You will do good works if you have true faith. You will bear good fruit. That's a promise. It's a result, but it's not a prior requirement. Now, I'm not picking on Rome here. That's not the point. We do that too. We still smuggle in works and we feel less justified. See, it is by faith alone, but not a faith that is alone. Works evidence a faith that's already been given. We work because we're saved. We don't work in order to be saved. We're not saved by our obedience. We are saved. We are set free from sin and made alive to God so we can finally and for the first time and fully obey Him. We're saved to be able to obey. We're saved to obey. So we want to we make sure that as we go into this text that is so much about faith Works, because the whole text is contrasting, continuing to contrast faith and works. We've got to make sure that we get them in the right order. And then we'll figure out what does justification mean. So, put your thinking caps on, buckle your seatbelts, join me in prayer, because here we go, we're in a dense text on a tiring day. Lord, please help us and help me. Lord, I want to be faithful. The Lord is not dependent on my faithfulness. I'll do my part. But Holy Spirit, we look to you. Turn that light on in our head. Fan that flame in our heart. And let your word come alive and nourish and change. But Lord, let your word come alive and give us hope and courage. And let your word come alive and let us know that we know that we know by your word, because of your spirit, that you love us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Paul now elaborates one crucial point from back in the verses we just looked at. Paul is going to make, I mean, the point is, God is going to make his righteousness available by to people by faith alone. This whole thing's been about faith. Next, he's going to elaborate and give an example of this by, in the life of Abraham. So we're contrasting in all these sections, faith and work. So right now in this text... Al's text before last week, we won't hear any more about God's redemption right now. Nothing about atoning sacrifices, nothing about justice. Paul now is going to focus and devote all his attention to one key element in the establishment of God's righteousness, into giving righteousness, faith. Faith is the way humanity responds rightly to God. Faith is the way humanity responds responds rightly to God. Through these verses are going to do just like the other ones. They contain rapid-fire questions and answers through which Paul is going to draw three implications from the truth that people are justified by faith. Number one, he's going to say, human boasting is excluded. 
And because you, oh no, no, don't put that up. Good, thank you. Human boasting is excluded. So faith shuts down human pride. That's the first thing he's going to draw. Number two, Jews and Gentiles experience justification and the gift of righteousness. God declares them all righteous in the same way. So faith levels out the playing field before, between Jews and Gentiles. And this requirement of the law, what do we do now that it's by faith? What do we do in the law? It's not put aside, but it's established. So faith fulfills the law. Now, Paul will not spell out here what is involved when he says God justifies those who have faith in Christ Jesus. He's not going to do that. He's going to do that later on in the letter, but we'll have a spoiler alert. We're not going to wait till June the 8th when that next text comes up explaining it. We'll throw on and out today. Now, let's look at our Bibles. I'm reading out of the ESV. So let's look down at the text. Chapter 3, starting in verse 27. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No! But by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also. Since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. Do we overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Okay, David, sorry. Now throw that up. Here's the three points we're going to look at. Faith shuts down human pride. So there's the first two verses. Number two, faith levels out the playing field. And then we're going to end up, faith fulfills the law. It just shuts down human pride, it levels out the playing field, and it fulfills the law. And then, next slide, David, here's our takeaway for today. Our works don't work. Listen, (laughs) we got to get that. That's not just a statement for unbelievers. Unbelievers need to hear that. You can't earn righteousness. It don't work, because it can't work. But as a Christian, our works still don't work if we think, if we think that earns something with God. We're justified by faith, not by works. Works are important, but remember, cart before the horse. And you know when you feel your most guilt? Now, guilt's good, but when you feel false guilt, that's when you put the cart before the horse. And we can't do that. Oh, I could go and explain that for a long time, but let's not do that. Our works don't work. God's gift of faith gives us God's gift of righteousness. Check this out. Did it on purpose. Our don't work. God's gift. God's gift. The focus is on what God has done in Christ for us. What God has done in Christ because of us, it was our fault. And what God has done in Christ to us. He justifies us. He gives us new life. He changes us. He transforms us. So it's about God. So let's, okay, David, pop next one. Good, thanks, bro. Number one, faith shuts down human pride. Let's look in our text. Then what becomes of our boasting? It's excluded. By what kind of law? Remember the whole time he's been talking about law, faith, law, faith, law, faith. By what kind of law? By a law of works? No, 
but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. Remember back in chapter 2 how Paul's chatted up with this hypothetical Jewish dialogue partner. And this guy's been boasting about the law. Now, he had things he could really legitimately boast in. Israel was given the law. But to boast in the law or your keeping of the law as like, hey, I'm righteous and I deserve something from God. I've pulled the right lever. I've paid my dues. No, you can't boast about that. He reminds this hypothetical Jewish guy that his disobedience to the law has caused God's name to be blasphemed. Among the Gentiles. Remember that? Now he moves the discussion along. He's going to point out that if the standard, if the gold standard of getting righteousness from God or being righteous was about the law of works, then duh, Jews have an inside track because they have the Mosaic law. But whether we're talking about the law of Moses, commentators are divided, or a God-given conscience, or a rule or a principle, either way, Paul pointed out, has already pointed out that no matter what, We can never adequately obey God. No one, Jew or Gentile, no one, no one is righteous. Our works don't work. Humanity is not innocent. We're all guilty as charged. Why? Remember last week? We've all failed to do the things God requires of us. All of us have fallen short. But when a person believes the gospel... The good news that the Lord Jesus died for their sins and that God raised him from the dead and they throw themselves on God's mercy, admitting that they're guilty and they need Jesus to save them and they want to follow him. Oh, what happens right then? God declares that on the... God makes a declaration in advance of doomsday, the day of judgment. He makes a declaration now about what he's going to say on that day. The verdict on that day of the person who's had faith, the verdict of the guilty person who exercises faith towards Christ, the verdict, not guilty. I mean, that's Romans 8. There's therefore now no condemnation. That's why it's a great day when Jesus comes. I'm not scared. I mean, it's going to be kind of like, whoa. But I'm... I'm, you know, everybody wants to see an angel. Read what happens when people see angels in the Bible. They hit the deck. That's what happens, you know. So, um, but it's going to be, oh my, but at the end of the day, I already know what's going to happen. Guilty, vile, and helpless we, full atonement? Can it be? What a Savior! I'm not guilty. That's crazy. I'm grateful. It makes me glad. See, it's faith, the humble acceptance of God's offer of salvation. It's faith, not works. We don't work in order to merit salvation. We don't work in order to earn salvation. The wages of sin is death, and that's all we do before we're Christian. It's faith, not works, that provides our justification. It's a gift of faith and a gift of righteousness where a sinner accepts God's gracious gift of salvation. We can't brag or take credit. That's why boasting is gone. that's, That's why it shuts out our pride. How can we brag or take credit for something that's been given to us by God? We know Our works don't work. They can't. 
So we have no bragging rights. We have no room for pride. That's why we say our works don't work. God's gift of faith gives us God's gift of righteousness. Second point, faith levels out the playing field. Back down to the text. Let's do our bobblehead thing. Look down at 29. Faith levels out the playing field. Or is God the God of Jews only? Is he not the God of Gentiles also? Yes, of Gentiles also, since God is one who will justify the circumcised by faith and the uncircumcised through faith. In Paul's day, every pious Jew would confess the same thing every day. It's Deuteronomy 6. Hear, O Israel, the Lord is our God. The Lord is one. Paul takes this truth and he levels out the playing field between Jews and Gentiles as he's still talking to this imaginary Jewish Christian. He shuts down those who would claim a permanent, careful, careful, hear carefully, because he says other things that are wonderful about the Jews later. But in this instance, he levels it out by shutting down anyone who would say that the Jews have a permanent privileged status solely and exclusively because they're ethnically Jews. They're physical descendants of Abraham or those that convert and are Gentile converts to the law of Moses. No, he slam dunks their tendency to confine confine justification to the law alone, works of the law, obeying the law. That earns justification. No, it's not just about works of the law of Moses. It's not just about works towards a natural law. It's not just works about um, natural Israel and those proselytes who have come into Israel and taken on the, the burden, in a good way, taken on the burden of law. No, 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 no. God is now... Listen, the Lord is one? That means he's the Lord. He's the God of Jews and of Gentiles. And in this new covenant... In this new age, in this new way, the promised one that was going to come upon all humanity. Now, after Christ, everybody, Jew and Gentile, get dealt with identically. How does justification occur? One way and one way only. Faith in the Son. And the Son's finished work. So now, because of the new covenant, the old has been transformed. And now it's about faith. Anyone, anyone, and everyone is justified in the same way. And it's interesting. In this verse, he writes, will justify. Back in verse 28, he wrote, one who is justified. Will justify, one who is justified. One who is justified refers to the present, the present time. Will justify reflects the fact that justification, in in Paul's language right then, he's actually referring to that final day of judgment when God will adjudicate the royal holy judge of all mankind, will bang the gavel and rule in favor of all who have put their faith in Christ Jesus. Everyone comes before the throne, and here we are, and here's Jesus, and there's an adjudication And some are going to the lake of fire. All deserve to go to the lake of fire. Some are going to the lake of fire. Others will hear, not guilty. But you know that now, what you're going to hear then. Christian, you know that now, what you're going to hear then. Your justification's a done deal. It's never, ever repeated. 
If you're a Christian, you will never be more justified than you are right now. Not even in heaven. And when the Lord returns, he will finally and fully declare you then what he's already decided now. (laughs) He'll declare you then what he's already decided now. You're justified because of your faith in Christ Jesus. Now, Jim, remind me what justification is again. So glad you asked. Let's look on the screen. Next slide. This is a guy named J.I. Packer. Oh, by the way, you don't need to frantically copy this down after the worship set at the very end. These things will be on the, on the thing. So just read it and enjoy. Justification is a judicial act of God pardoning sinners, accepting them as just, and so putting permanently right their previously estranged relationship with him. Oh, that's good news. This justifying sentence, there's the judge, is God's gift of righteousness. His bestowal of a status, you're declared in the right. His bestowal of a status of acceptance for Jesus' sake. That's Mr. Packer. Let's look at another guy named R.C. Sproul. Next text. Justification may be defined as that act by which unjust sinners are made right in the sides, in the sight of a just and holy God. The supreme need of unjust persons is righteousness. It's this lack of righteousness that is supplied by Christ on behalf of the believing sinner. Justification by faith alone means justification by the righteousness or merit of Christ alone. Not by our goodness or our good deeds. Next slide, David. So see why we keep on saying our works don't work? God's gift of faith gives us God's gift of righteousness as well. Third and final point, faith fulfills the law. Let's look down at our text, verse 31. Do we then overthrow the law by this faith? By no means. And actually, that's a very strong, the way Paul says that, he, he says that other times in the text, and we'll figure it out more, but it's very strong. You can hear, uh, do we then overthrow the law by this faith? Absolutely not! That's what Paul would say. On the contrary, we uphold the law. Uh, another translation, I like how it says it. Does faith make the law useless? Not at all. We agree with the law. So what's Paul up to here? Well, remember he's been, as we looked at when we were looking at what's the background of the letter, there's some folks that are pinging his gospel saying it's, it's, a, it's, a, it's not a good gospel. And he's defending this gospel from a slanderous attack while at the same time he strongly affirms that God's law is not abolished, it's not nullified, it's not overthrown, it's not invalidated, absolutely not. But he affirms that God's law is confirmed, fulfilled, and in a way that nobody would have ever dreamed possible. Everybody got the works. No, by faith. Later on in the letter, he'll explain how this happens. Paul doesn't explain this here. But let me give you a little quick plot spoiler. No, it's, it's a quick flyover. Remember Jesus preaching on the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5? 
he announces that he's come not to abolish the law, but to fulfill it. Well, Paul provides an echo of this announcement in our text. Because Jesus obeyed the law perfectly, he fulfilled his demands perfectly. And he didn't just fulfill his demands perfectly, he became its perfect and true tangible expression. Remember the transfiguration? Moses Moses, and Elijah appearing with Jesus, beside Jesus, living symbols of the law and the prophets. But by the end of the account, who's alone? You see, the sole fulfillment of the biblical hope of righteousness, the, the second Adam, the true Israel, is Jesus. He obeyed when no one else did. He's our hope. We're justified without having to observe the law. But the law, listen careful, we're justified. But the law is fulfilled in those who have faith in Christ, those who are in union with Christ, those who have the righteousness of Christ. What about the commands of God? Well, they're upheld by those who have faith in Christ. Because now, in this new age, the Holy Spirit has come, this new covenant. We can uphold the law by, by the power of the Holy Spirit. How do we do that? We're being conformed to the image of the one who has obeyed the law. The Son. And like the Son, we will keep the moral and ethical norms revealed throughout the Old Testament. Of course. I mean, after all, think about it for just a minute. We all know the Great Commission. What's the Great Commission? Teach one another to obey all that Jesus commanded us in the New Testament. We follow the Great Commandment. Love God and love our neighbor. And by the way, in chapter 13 of Romans, Paul's going to say, loving one's neighbor fulfills the law. So our works don't work. But God's gift of faith gives us God's gift of righteousness, and that causes a heart change, regeneration, that gives us, oh, it's a promise in Jeremiah, we will want to live a life of loving obedience, a life that is pleasing to God, a life of loving obedience that's empowered by the Holy Spirit. See, we don't clean ourselves up in order to get saved. Our works don't work. They can't. Salvation is not about works. It's all about faith and faith. Thank you, Mr. Luther. Alone. Okay, what do we do with all this data? What's our take home? What's the point? Well, that's pretty simple. Um, Amazement. Humility. Wonder. Joy. Worship. Gratitude. Why would we have all of that? Well, let let me just summarize it all. Here we go. Here, here's the roller coaster. Here we go. You ready? We can't keep the law. We aren't righteous. We're sinners. We deserve eternal punishment. But Jesus came to save us. Now, here's the gospel. Jesus is talking to Nicodemus by night. What does he tell him? I won't go through the whole text, but think. He came to save us. So must, must, must. So must the Son of Man be lifted up. He's talking about the crucifixion. So must the Son of Man be lifted up, that whoever believes in Him may have eternal life. For God so loved the world that He gave His only Son, that whoever believes in Him should not perish, but have eternal life. For God did not send His Son into the world to condemn the world, 
but in order that the world might be saved through him. Whoever believes in him, Jesus is talking, is not condemned. But whoever does not believe in him is condemned already. We, if you're a Christian, we've been saved from the eternal wrath of God. We've been forgiven. God has pardoned all our sins, past, present, future. We've been declared not guilty by the just judge of the universe, the judge who knows and sees all our thoughts, all our motives, all our attitudes, all our actions. He knows everything. And that's the one who says, oh, by the way, because of my son, not guilty. We've been justified. Oh, by the way, we've also been declared righteous. Listen to 2 Corinthians 5. For our sake, God, he made him, God made Jesus. For our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. Now, listen to this carefully. I ripped this off from somebody, paraphrase it. It's good, though. If God declared a person innocent, it means he's not guilty of breaking God's law. Not guilty. That happened. But if God declares a person righteous, so we're forgiven and we're declared righteous, not guilty. But if God declares a person righteous, it means he is innocent and He has also fulfilled the requirement of the law. The only person who ever did that was Jesus. But in Christ, as a Christian, in union with him, I'm forgiven. In union with him, I'm declared innocent of ever breaking God's law. Not guilty. And in him... I'm counted as one who's kept every dimension of every one of God's just and holy laws. And all of this is by faith alone, apart from work. See, faith is not a work. Faith is passive. Let me, let me paraphrase a guy named John Calvin. Faith is passive, but, receiving, but, it, but it receives from Christ all which we lack. Let me quote another guy named John Piper, paraphrase him. Faith is, is passive. We rest. We do not work. We receive. We do not earn. Why? Because it was earned for us. Faith is a gift from God. Let me quote somebody a little more imp- important than Piper or Calvin. How about Ephesians 2? For you're saved by grace through faith. And this is not from yourselves. It is God's gift. Not from works, so that no man can boast. What does Peter have to say about that? Well, in 2 Peter 1, those who have received a faith of the same, excuse me, to those who have received a faith as the same as ours, by the righteousness of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Faith, faith, receive. We don't work, 
What we earn, what we earned was death. Somebody else earned life. Somebody else came so we could be saved. Somebody else lived a perfect life and fulfilled the entire law. He did everything that was impossible for you to do. Because works don't work. They can't. That's the point. No one does right. No one seeks after God. No one does it all right. Somebody, in some way, violates your own conscience. Some way, in somehow what God has imprinted. Some way, somehow, you violated the law of Moses. Some way, somehow, you've either violated it or you failed to do it. Because that's another way to sin. To fail to do what you should do is another Bible definition of sin. And we need a Savior. And His name is Christ the Lord. And he didn't just not sin. By the way, that was enough. But he also didn't fail to do. Sorry, English teachers, double negative. He did everything that was required. And he did it all perfectly. And here's what's crazy. He did it on your behalf. It's my fault he died. And he loved me enough to not just say not guilty, but to give me a righteousness that now I can approach the Father. Who will ascend his holy hill, the Old Testament says? Pure hands, a clean heart? I ain't got that. Now I do. Not, not, not a faith that's mine. It's, it's, it's because we're together. I'm in him. This is really good. And here's what's crazy. It's not fiction. On that last day, if you have repented and believed, if you put your trust not in what you can do, your works don't work, but in Christ Jesus, listen, God doesn't love me. My life just stinks right now. Not ignoring that, that's not funny. It's really true. I say something stronger, but I'm on tape. And it just is terrible. Does he love me? God seems distant. God, God, God. We live in a fallen world and we suffer. We've been given the gift of faith. But by the way, that same verse in Peter um, talks about giving the gift of suffering. And sometimes God feels a long way away. And I need to be reminded about a, a secondary point in this text. It's about faith, not works. There's a secondary point. I'm justified. I've been declared righteous. I already know when I stand before Jesus, no wonder we're going to throw our crowns. No wonder we're going to sing worthy as a lamb who was slain. No wonder it's just room for boasting. I'm a sinner. Now, I'm a saint now, a saint who still sins. But I know I'm a sinner. I wasn't looking for him. He came and found me. And he didn't just find me. He gave me a gift. He gave me a gift of faith, and I responded to him. What's up with that? And then he said, by the way, on the last day, I want, to let, I, want you, I want you to exhale. I want you to long for my appearing, not be scared of my appearing. I want to let you know what you're going to hear. Not guilty. By the way, you also fulfilled all the, all the laws of righteousness. No, I didn't. Oh, yeah, you did, because you're with me. You're in me. And by the way, by my spirit, I'm in you. And I'll never leave you, and I'll never forsake you. 
Welcome to the new covenant. Oh, you're a saint who still sins. You still sin. Duh. Not guilty. Are there consequences? Yeah, yeah. Not guilty. You don't have to wait to the fifth song to get excited. You do that? You ever do that? I've done that. You come in, bad day, kicked the dog, yelled at the wife. Third song, I do enough works. Now I can worship. Listen, you come in, you're convicted, guilt's good, repent, and then start singing, because you're forgiven. Oh, by the way, what if I drop dead before, you know, A and B? Uh, No, no. Some people in this room know exactly what I'm talking about. You'll never be more justified in heaven than you are the day you repented and believed and you had faith in Christ. Band, come on forward, let's pray. Lord, thank you so much that we can be together and look at justification. We can look at righteousness. Lord, we can look at a faith that is a gift. We can look at the Savior who died for me and gave himself for me when it was my fault. When I was his enemy, he died for me. When I was running away from him, he ran after me and came and sought me out. Oh, Lord, who cannot love this Savior? What a Savior. Lord, I still sin. And you've promised you'll never leave me or forsake me. Not just in a fallen world where, where people are after me. You're always there. We have your word. We have your spirit. We have each other. Lord, you've provided. You're not cheap or chintzy. You're generous. Lord, as we sing, what a Savior. Let us remember we're justified, declared not guilty. We're declared righteous because of you. You've given us that robe of righteousness. You've given us, we've got the reward that you deserved. You got death, we got life. Crazy. We're grateful. Thank you. Let us never doubt your love because we're justified by your blood. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.